Do you want to get moving then? Yes, please. Real. Okay. Right, we're starting Start. early. What's going on with us? We are, yeah. What's happening? <laughs> Dan, which episode is it? 21? 20, I think. Episode 20 of More Than A Job podcast. My name's Mike Bradford. I'm Jay Overton. And my name is Daniel Bull. And tonight, it's our absolute pleasure to welcome a special guest to the More Than A Job podcast. We are joined by Fleur Anderson, MP. Fleur's victory was the only gain that Labour made in the 2019 general election, making her entry into the House of Commons even more special. Fleur has already made a name for herself in Whitehall and Parliament, and she is a member of the Commons Educational Select Committee, and now the fourth member of the committee to join us on the podcast. Fleur is also the Shadow Minister for the Cabinet Office, shadowing the former Secretary of State for Education, the Right Honourable Michael Gove MP. Fleur, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Could you tell us a little bit more, Fleur, about your journey through education and why you're so passionate about education and making a difference to the lives of young people? Thanks very much. I love this section. I've listened to a few of your other episodes. So it's always interesting to hear uh, people's uh, experience in education. And now because I see them in some of the MPs just in the House of Commons and we don't know much about what happened to them before. So after leaving school, I worked in development um, and working a lot with young people with development campaigns. And then I became a youth worker in the Methodist Church. So working with uh, young people, campaigning on issues, but also working out what being a youth worker is like. And I think that was really, really formative in my understanding of education and sticking up for, for youth work as well and informal youth work alongside formal education and the importance of it. Um, I've got four kids. So I think I learned a lot about the current education system, taking them through that, sitting there, holding them, their hands, sometimes getting quite good marks for my homework, I must say. Um, and also I have been a school governor for five years locally. And then most recently, before becoming an MP, I was running a community centre. Um, one of our projects was called Love to Learn, supporting refugee children and children from refugee backgrounds, but in London through education and making that bridge between family and education to make their educational experience um, as good as it could be and give them give them every opportunity. They face many unique barriers. So we had mentors, homework clubs, um, a lot to wrap around formal education. And I learned a lot through doing that as well. So I've got a varied experience that I bring, and I'm really grateful for that, really, to be bringing that into the House of Commons. I was going to say, but does anything truly prepare you for, for life in the Commons, though, Fleur? Nothing can. It's so varied, very exciting in so many different ways. And then uh, three months after I started, we had COVID. So that's just, I mean, so everyone's experience of being an MP changed dramatically as well. Um, and now we're, now we're going back to uh, everyone else going, well, this is how it was. And I'm thinking, I can't really remember how it was. Uh, I didn't get much of that. So it's, it's certainly been a learning curve for me. I know it's not an education-based question, but how did that night feel in December 2019 when, of course, you were the only Labour gain, yet many of your colleagues and, and possibly friends within the party lost seats and, and the party didn't make the gains. How did that feel for you? Well, it was a culmination of a long campaign in Putney, about two years of campaigning, uh, four times a week talking to people in, in the community um, and, and a 
campaign that had got better and better and better over time towards me winning. Um, so we thought we were doing really, really well, sort of us just in Putney. And then we looked up and saw, oh, it, it's not, not the same in the rest of the country. So it was quite a surprise. And it was a strange mixture of the, the campaign that I'd been most involved with had done really well and we'd felt really positive and more and more people supporting us and then and I'd always thought if I won I'd be going in with a lot of Labour MPs and I know a lot of the others who were standing and didn't get in I thought we'd all go in or we wouldn't go in I didn't expect to be the only one so it, very bittersweet I must say going into being an opposition. Fleur we spoke to your colleague Ian Mearns MP last week about Kate Green Labour's Shadow Education Secretary who described Sir Kevin Collins' resignation as a damning indictment of the Conservatives' education catch-up plan. Now that the dust has settled, what are your thoughts on the catch-up plan and the resignation? Well, Kevin Collins came to the Select Committee, as Ian said, and it was very inspiring to hear him because he'd really been plucked by the government to come and say, look, we we realise this is a really tall order, this is a unique circumstance, but you've got a special background and ambition for Britain's children uh, and a vision for how this will happen. So come along and, and make this happen. Let's work together. And it's so disappointing that he doesn't feel that that ambition was matched in government. I mean, to, to go as far as resigning is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? That he really didn't feel that he would get any further because he was so committed to doing this. When he met with us, we we sort of shared his infectious enthusiasm for saying, look, there can be a plan. We, we can work with children and we can also see that where we need to go to make sure that we don't suffer problems for years to come for our education system, but for those all those individual children who will miss out. So I am really disappointed that Gavin Williamson couldn't get the money that he needed from, from the Treasury, really, to, to support what he felt was needed. And I think we're going to be talking about this and the aftershock of that resignation for a long time to come. Fleur, where do you think the blame resides? Do you think it's with... Gavin Williamson, the DfE, for not putting across a strong enough case? Or do you feel it's Downing Street and, and their own agenda, or possibly even the blame falls at, at number 11 at Rishi Sunak's door? Where, where would you assign the blame? Well, it's a bit back in the different parties' philosophy, isn't it, that um, that, that Labour would would see the value of education. I would say this, I know, but I, I think that that's, that's part of a philosophy of the two different parties. That's a difference between the two different parties. So where are you going to put your money? You're going to put it into business. You're going to put it into different areas. I wouldn't say don't put it into business, but I do think that, that Labour have more of a, 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 a in our essence, um, an emphasis on money and then back up on an education. And then we back up that up with the funding that's necessary. Um, so, yeah, but what is what is blocking it? What is it that um, also the Treasury have sort of stopped with many ex people who were excluded during the time of the pandemic as well? This kind of will go this far, but no further. And that seems to be what he's done with education, that you don't really need it. And a really maybe not an understanding. And I think it's I think it's the Treasury that blocked it in the end. So Rishi. Also, this is an economics podcast and I'm more than happy for people to know that, yeah, I, I don't believe in, in mass, mass intervention from the state at all times. But ultimately, you're talking £10 billion, which is a lot of money. I'm not playing it down. Yet it is a drop in the ocean versus the the whole amount that has been spent on the whole pandemic, isn't it? I'm not playing down the amount of money that it is, but what is another 9 billion 
versus the 300 plus billion pounds that's already been spent. And I, I suppose that's a, a view some people are going to have, isn't it? And 32 billion was earmarked for the track and trace. Now, that money hasn't all been spent. I think about 277 million was needed in the end. There's a big discrepancy. But there was a feeling of, will absolutely, there was, there's nothing we wouldn't spend on some areas, maybe too much on track and trace, and, and especially given the outcomes. But um, why is that not, that same philosophy not applied to education? Maybe it's just very hard to make that case. And if you're not inside education, it, that understanding of what the impact of that will be over the long term, you, you can see in the young people that you know what, what the impact of that is. But it, it, mental health is really ethereal, isn't it? So we can't say it, it will cause this problem this year, will cause that in five years, and therefore we're going to be losing out. And the financial issues that we're going to face down the line are very real, but they've been very hard to quantify. Um, so it's maybe there's mu- much more of maybe missing that understanding. I mean, I'm at a loss to understand why you wouldn't invest now, because I, I can absolutely see those problems down the line. But maybe there's something about the case needs to be made for mental health more or how we how we describe it. It's a it's a real challenge, isn't it? When we were talking to Ian last week, We um, also discussed Labour's plan for education as well. Now, my question to you is, is this plan realistic or is it just some fanciful wish list, knowing that Labour can say what they want and they'll never have to really implement it? And now that you're on the shadow cabinet, are Labour really offering the right opposition to probably one of the most unpopular ministers in the history of the department? Well, first part of your question is, uh, would Labour deliver? We're really, really careful. And I know this because I have to have my policies approved by our our shadow treasury team. We're really careful to to really fund and work out where the spending for our priorities comes from. We don't put out wish lists. So that's one way of looking at it. And if you don't believe that, you could look back on Labour's track record of spending. So under Labour, the, our, the government last time, we increased our spending on education from 4.5% to 5.9% of GDP, real hard cash investment, 5% a year for school increase every single year for schools, real terms. But under the Tories, it's got bad, back down to 4.5% of GDP. So we delivered when we were in government before. I think we really do cost out our plans now and we carefully look at. So how not only what we would like to have, and, and there's a great list, I think, there of breakfast clubs and activities, mental health, tutoring plans. These are on the catch up plan. I think there's a great list there, but it is carefully costed out. Fleur, just on that, obviously in the in the Education Select Committee, it's cross-party and you were actually recommended by Jonathan Gullis, one of your Tory colleagues. And clearly within the committee, there seems to be a lot of camaraderie, you know, cross-party camaraderie. How do you overcome these discussions about Labour has spent this on, you know, when, when you were last in government? Surely the Tory members of the committee, even though you're working together, are not going to agree with that. So how do you kind of overcome this partisan viewpoints on, on things like that in order to get a, like a, you know, a unified outcome for the children of this country? Uh, I think there maybe some, some of the members of the Education Select Committee, I don't think they'd mind me saying, are some of the ones who are more sceptical about the Conservative education policy. And they're not afraid to ask the questions about how it's really working out. Jonathan is one of those. And the chair that you've had to speak as well on the podcast, um, Rob Halfen as well. He is he's very critical at times and not afraid to be. 
And that's what makes him a good chair. I do really respect him as the chair, that he is a Conservative. He's a former minister, but he's absolutely not afraid to call out the government and to, to really focus on the best outcomes for young people. He's an absolute champion of apprenticeships. So on those kind of things, we can we can agree. But then when it comes to a certain stage of actually your, what, your, your worldview, sometimes your policies disagree, then we have votes. So, for example, we had a, a recent report that came out very recently and we had a, a meeting with the whole series of votes when it comes to actually that's your amendment. That's your amendment. different members of the committee put those contentious points um, and we have to, to vote on it. That's the only way to get through. But I do think we want to we, we do want to work together cross party and, and try and do that as much as we can. But it, it's inevitably it's not going to be on everything. You must be doing quite a good job because Jonathan Gullis is a man of strong opinion, as, as we found out, in, you know, in a humorous way. And he recommended you, Fleur. So you must be doing something right. Just moving on now, on the 14th of June 2021, you wrote to the safeguarding minister regarding children accessing pornography online, which was followed by the condemning report from Ofsted raising the concerns of peer-to-peer sexual harassment in schools by uh, school-aged children. What are your thoughts on this and what should we do about it? I'm really glad you raised this. It's a real concern of mine. It's a concern of mine as a, as a mum, to be honest, more than as much as anything else, I'm really concerned for my children. And I would have thought my children would be safer than I was. I spent years, you know, campaigning or reclaiming the night, uh, campaigning for different, for women's safeguarding. And I think my children, and they are sort of older older teenagers and at university, are less safe than I was. And that I really despair. And a lot of that is online. Um, so I'm really focusing on the online harms bill. I met with, we met with the police safeguarding officer for schools for across the UK um, the other day. And he told us really shocking stories about how the increase of the, the images online how hardcore those images are, um, how many more a month, millions a month are posted online and by children. 44% of the images are being created by children and younger and younger as well. So 64% of new sexual images are produced by girls aged 11 to 13 at home. It's just extraordinary. And sort of the, the use by children, the numbers and the age really, really worrying. So we need to get a grip on it. It's absolutely uh, essential. There is an online harms or an online safety bill coming up. And I'm really focusing on that bill. The um, access to legal porn could be really stopped by um, age qualification. Now, obviously, there's ways around that. And that has to be built in as well. But at the moment, there is no legal age you can access um, porn at any age, and there, but there could be safeguards against it. So I've really looked at so what can we actually do to make actual hard and fast policies that will make a difference? And that is one of them that will stop this, stop this floodgates of um, millions of images. So that's what's being, uh, I'm campaigning with um, the Children's Society and others for that specific policy. But I know there's, there's lots more that needs to be done in schools, PHSE, Pro, um, curriculum. There's lots of other things, but I, I'm, I'm really focusing on something I hope that I can achieve within the online safety bill. While I agree that there is an awful lot that we need to do in schools to tackle this problem, see it ourselves. Every year we put out the water, you know, as a pastoral lead in schools, every year we put out this warning about this and every year it falls on deaf ears and we have to deal with something along those lines. But it can't always just be a school problem. So 
where else do you feel that this problem lies and what else can be done to support schools in dealing with this issue? Well, I agree with you, which is why I'm kind of looking outside schools to look at where's some of the source of this. Where are the images? Where, where are the social media platforms? Where's their responsibility and what should they be putting in place alongside it? So there's something about how can we stop that access to the images and the access which they have in schools if they are allowed phones, but also outside. But there's also the, the whole chatting to each other, calling each other out and maybe wrongly on um, sexual harassment. All of that needs to be, needs to be tackled together, which is why I've, I've said, right, well, I, I can focus on one area. Uh, and that's looking at the access to the images and how we can stop those. And that has been called out by police safeguarding officers as well. But it's got to be every aspect, hasn't it? And how would we equip parents to be able to match what teachers are doing in schools as well? So, I've, you know, like yourself, I've spoken to so many teachers who are just kind of, what can we do? You know, we're, we're just one part of it. Parents, I know for myself, I just throw up my hands and I go, I don't know what my children are doing some of the time. How can I know? Um, how can I ask the right questions? How can I, how can I have a bit of power in this? Um, and then I think that social media platforms have got to step up and just take more responsibility. It's just going to get worse. But I mean, I'd love to know what you think I could do as well, and what what we could talk about in the select committee as well, maybe which might make a difference. Yeah, Fleur, I've just been thinking about this as you were talking. I think what's most concerning is you're saying the most common is 11 to 13 year old girls so we're talking that these behaviors are probably already established in primary school primary school by the yeah. time they come into secondary that's yeah. concerning now we can talk about education but there's a real risk isn't there of taking the innocence of childhood away if at age eight nine ten we're talking to children think of these small children think about how they see the world but we're now talking to them about graphic images we're talking about pornography we're talking about all the things that come with it it's, it's a real concern I it absolutely is yeah there was a, there was a, a, the report from Childline actually out today talking of saying that girls are being asked for a, a, up to 11 times a night for nude images um, so yeah and this is happening so young what what kind of society are we that's allowing this I think no, no one wants this. We've got to find ways to stop it. One of my briefs as a senior leader is the personal development brief. And at the moment, I'm just I'm plotting out the curriculum for uh, we call it global learning, but it's, it's PHSE, it's citizenship, fundamental British values, etc. And actually just this conversation with you tonight is making me think year seven. We always do sessions with them on e-safety. We always do sessions with them on, 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 on you know, how to use the Internet properly. But actually, this sounds like it needs a more intensive piece of work, doesn't it? And you don't want to have to expose children too early to these things. But perhaps there is some element of, of shock factor required because we're still treating school children at 11, 12, 13 like children. Whereas in actual fact, they are doing adult things with a children's mentality, aren't they, behind it? And, and it, it really just makes me, me think it's, it's, it's food for thought and... I haven't got any immediate answers apart from continual education and exposure. I mean, you know, educational exposure to the harms, the causes, the consequences, etc. But certainly I think this is one that's going to roll on, isn't it? Yeah. And I think before now it's been up to left to parents quite a lot to say, find out what privacy settings there are, find out what's going on, have that conversation with your children and make sure everything's locked. But it's, it's way beyond that. Being able to have that conversation in an age appropriate way 
but also to match what they're seeing. That's absolutely the challenge. Yeah. Phil, I don't know if the select committee ever actually speak to to children, but we're talking about an issue that's affecting 11, 12 and 13 year olds. And we as adults who are all of a certain age and a certain level of experience are discussing how to solve a problem that actually has been experienced by these, you know, the, the children aged between 11 to 13, possibly younger. So perhaps that's the first inroad. Let's speak to these children of these age and let's truly find out what their experience is. What are they being asked to do? How are they being asked to do it? How do they feel when they're put in that position? Why are predominantly girls giving into the pressure? You know, what what is being said or done to them that's really making them fold to this pressure? Also, we don't know the answers. We're not 11, 12, 13 year old yeah. girls. Why but... are boys asking for these images? What are, What's driving that as well? Absolutely. We, we spoke to some young young adults recently about their experiences of COVID and it was really instructive. That I'm really glad we did. Um, so you're absolutely right. Talking to children is so important. I think part of it would be interesting to know as well, speak to children to find out when are they using their software? What is their parents' response when they're using it? What was it bought for? I mean, as a father of twin nine-year-old girls who have so many security features on their on their devices that they can barely even type their own name on it without me knowing what's going on. There are days when I've just, I'm so tired, they'll say, oh, Dad, can I just, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And then I set an alarm bell off and go, hold on, what have I just done? I've given them access to some sort of, without knowing what's going on. But actually, how many parents really care or just use it as a, oh, it's a way to shut them up. So actually, I don't care what they're doing. I just need to shut them up. Or James, not necessarily about how many how many parents care, how many parents actually truly know what is going on? So do we even know what is going on, how this is happening, where it's happening? We probably don't because we're so, so far removed from it, you know, due to, you know, culture, generation, etc. That I don't know if it's parents not caring or not. No, it's not. Or it's the fact that they don't know as opposed to they don't care. Yeah, I really care. But we've got to accept that, yeah, we don't have all the time in the world. So given that we don't all have all the time in the world, I don't know what questions to ask or what they might be doing or how to find out that would be. Therefore, it has to be stopped. This All this graphic imagery has got to be put away in a cupboard and locked up. And what's the equivalent of how we can do that online? It needs to be in su- such a way that it's... Technology is not going to always be ahead. Three, it's always going to be three steps ahead of parents, at least me. So how do, how do we even stop it getting there? It's like the, the top shelf. It used to be on the top shelf of a news agent. It's, it's got to be that equivalent online. And it's not at the moment. You can't do a lot of things to little 16 or 18, but you can access hardcore porn. I mean, what is what's going on? So there should be the equivalent to that because we've got to accept that parents don't have all the time in the world. They absolutely care, but they can't keep up with this. to change topic now we're going to move on to something that is absolutely hot off the press the commons education select committee of today published their report on disadvantaged white students should we now end the use of this term white privilege and what do you suggest we do to support the progress and future of white disadvantaged students because i'm under the impression that you've actually voted against the committee's recommendations today and could you also sort of talk us through your thought process of that So it's a very interesting report. The committee together, we've talked about how we want to um, 
there are some things cross-party in that committee. And what we do agree cross-party is that we want to look at disadvantaged groups and how they're being left behind in our education system. So that was the starting point. Uh, but deciding to look at white working class, uh, the group of white working class, was a, it's a you know, politically contentious issue uh, right from the start. So we knew it was, was going to be, how do, we, how do we walk that fine line between um, looking at a whole group in terms of um, ethnicity but, and also where, where's class in that? And, uh, so we came up with a report, which I think when we heard the evidence was much more about place. It's much more about if you live in a rural area, a coastal area, different areas of the UK, you're going to be more disadvantaged. Much more, I think, we saw than ethnicity. It's not about whether you're white or not. In many of those areas in the UK, there are the, a big, large majority of pupils who are white. And so when you look at the, the data, uh, that's what comes out rather than um, other disadvantages. And for example, London comes out as being an area where there has been increased attainment and increased attainment even for, for those pupils who are on free school meals, which is the, I know, very crude, but that's the marker that we, we chose to look at. Um, but there's been a lot of investment in London schools, a whole series of many years of investment that has turned that around. But because there's a higher number of black and ethnic minority pupils in London, it can look like they are the ones receiving more educate more um, investment and therefore why are white pupils missing out as if you're kind of like giving too much to one group one disadvantaged group and not enough to another which I don't think is the right way of looking at it so I think the the report has got some really good recommendations in it and it rehearses some kind of like greatest hits of the select committee um, of before I started as well of early years investment, special educational needs, of really looking at um, uh, careers guidance um, and working along and also giving equal um, weighting to apprenticeships and other other forms of training, all of those things. But they apply to all pupils, not just to white pupils. And I think this potentially could be a very divisive report. So you mentioned white privilege. There's a whole section in there about the about how how part of the problem is that white privilege is ever mentioned. I don't think this is a big issue in schools. I don't know what you find. Um, it's it's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is is underfunding of schools. It's uh, not investing um, in in our young people. It's also not investing in the youth services that accompany our formal education. Going back to one of my um, uh, obsessions. Uh, I think those are the things we should be focusing on, not the differences between white and black disadvantaged young people. That's not going to get us anywhere. So as we saw in London, investment in the whole education system brings everyone up. That's what we should be doing across the country. It shouldn't matter where you live as to how much you can expect from your school and get from it. Um, and, and what can the state do in that is a uh, is is clearly of vital importance because there's such a disparity across the country. So I, I think there's a lot in the report that's good, but as, as a whole kind of a single message, it missed the point somewhat. And that's why we voted against it. What would you like to have seen as, as the main point? And what would it have taken for you to have voted with the, the recommendations? I think as an understanding, as we heard the evidence, actually, this is more about place and about understanding of, of those, all of the, the support around a family as well because we heard more and more evidence about uh, the the um, importance of what happens to a whole family how do you when you've got generations 
who are not ent uh, attaining as they should, um, as they have full potential to do, what is it in that, that community or that family that more support would actually change? And I think we should have listened a bit more to the, that evidence and then, and then investigated that more and not gone for the, being entirely this, what I think is divisive about being a white versus black um, narrative. So that would have been very instructive. And it would have said in some areas, white pupils are missing out. This is what we can do in other areas. And it's, it's different across the country. So a bit more, bit more nuanced, but useful. Flo, I totally agree with the argument that we need to have more investment. Youth services is an interesting um, one. We had um, Ndidi Okazi, who was the CEO of UK Youth on a few episodes ago, and she was talking about the power of youth work. I think that's something we, we can all get behind. We would love to see more funding in schools. And this is more of, again, a, a practical, maybe philosophical, political question. Has society become too big for what the state can provide for you know we are seeing everything all of our public services hugely stretched and public finances we're told obviously you know we're not in the in the exchequer ourselves but we're told that you know money is tight and spending's tight how are we going to keep providing all this finance how are we going to keep creating this i agree we need more funding but how is this going to happen because is society now not too big for the state Oh, well, we've got choices. That is a really big question. <laughs> that's, a, that's way beyond education now. That's, a, that's the whole, the role of the state here. Excellent. Um, so is the role of the state getting too big? No, I, don't, I absolutely don't think so. We, well, we've got priorities here, haven't we? We were talking before about do you give priorities to education or, or other measures? Um, and it's not, it's not just a question as, as well when you come to something as big as uh, looking at the state's budget. It's not like a household budget where you spend more on your your more on Netflix, you've got less to spend on beer. Um, actually, at the state, you can enhance our, our whole economy by investing in education, um, and then we will be more productive. So it's being much smarter about productivity, gives us more to invest, and it, and it all goes round um, in, in a circle. So do we think, do we value education as an integral part of, uh, of our investment in our economy as a whole? And I would say, yes, we do. And I would say we get a lot more for our buck um, by spending it on education, because actually that comes out that we have more money altogether. So I mean, this, this is a whole other subject for a whole day's worth of a podcast to say, how can we do that? But I also think that we actually um, we lose out when if you spend a lot of money on a great school in an area, but then you don't spend on the money on supporting families in that area and the money on supporting youth services to support some of those some of those young people who need a bit of extra boost. Then actually the money that you've spent on that great school is is not a best value. You need to spend the money on, on all the things together and seeing a community as a whole. And that, that's one of the recommendations of the report is about family hubs, which is about investing in the community that makes a resilient community so that when you so the education is a seamless also between early years support for family education has its proper role but then you also have a great options for training and then a career afterwards that's the ideal whole um, and to, to underfund one part of it doesn't make sense for the whole economy either so is that what makes a great school then and a great school culture is it not just the school building the bells and whistles is it investing in the school, investing in the pupils, investing in the community, investing in the wider ideas of the community, 
going beyond the school and investing in that child and his education five, six years into the future then? Well, yeah, there's what makes a great school inside the school, isn't there? But also what makes the, the, the school sort of work as a whole, a whole function. That, that um, child it doesn't just uh, do everything it does in school. It's, yeah, as you describe, it's the whole, the whole community. So that everything in the school, the caring, the valuing of every child, the consistent discipline, celebrating achievement, they're all great things for the culture. But then having them backed up as you all know from teachers like what's going on in their home and that does that undermine what I'm doing um, or does that actually add to it and what will they do after school what have they got to look forward to where's that where's their hope and aspirations and who's who's picking up some of some of the needs of children who who have additional needs or um, are really interested in some great sport outside school or other other areas that's what makes everything work together Um, so there's the culture in a school which is independent can be independent of a community but then what's the best is going to be all of those aspects of a, a child and a community as well and so we've been looking at adult education as well and the role that adult in the in the committee but the role that adult education plays in the education of young people too so um, in the community center where I was we were teaching English language to the mums as well as supporting the kids. And then they were empowered and able to speak to their children and their teachers more. And everything kind of comes in a circle. We could really see the benefit for a child's education of teaching a mum. So these things, we can't have anything in isolation. Well, I'm sure we could talk for for hours and hours about the the social, economic, philosophy of politics and (laughs) The divide between conservative ideology and socialist ideology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I don't think you're expecting this on more than a job, were you? You know, the question, the question time. <laughs> it's gone big. I love it. <laughs> we're going to uh, we're going to move on to a harder section now. So you, you think you've been grilled, but these are our fun questions that we always finish off the podcast with. And uh, you know, if you get these wrong, you might have the Labour whip in the morning. You know, contacting you. You know to to say, well, you know, how have you answered with that question? But you're not allowed to, it's not that you have sat on the fence. I think you've been very clear tonight in terms of what you believe in. And, and you know, I, I certainly agree with a lot of the things that you're saying. But for these, just a, a succinct answer, straightforward. I'll get started with the first question. Tea or coffee? Coffee. <laughs> I think you're one of, the, uh, one of the first interviewees to actually go for coffee. Yeah, tea is obviously very popular in the UK. Radical so. choice. <laughs> yeah. A radical choice from Putney. Next one. When the pubs in Putney recently reopened, what was the first drink that you ordered at the bar? A pint of cider. Okay, then. So, what would, who or what would be your top artist on Spotify? <laughs> well, actually, I was. <laughs> my kids have got a total access to my Spotify account. I can't seem to get on it. And I think they've all got, you know, the maximum number of people you can have on it. I, I think I found that I'm, I'm not even allowed on it anymore. And, and my son has just discovered the Smiths. He's 15 and he's discovered the Smiths. So I absolutely fine. So at the moment, my, on my Spotify account, I think you'd find that the Smiths uh, is topping the bill. Yeah, I love it. The sounds of the Smiths comes up, comes through the walls. Great. It's nice when it comes back as well, isn't it? You know, when our own children start loving the music we love. Yeah, it's surprising, but great. And I don't want to, I don't want to encourage him by saying I agree. Or I won't say anything about it at all, because otherwise that'll kill it. Right. What two items would you take with you if you were shipwrecked on a desert island, all your food and water's taken care of, 
So they can't be items to aid your survival. What would be your two luxury items, if you like, that you take? Oh, I would hate I would hate to be on a desert island, to be honest. I, I hate being on my own. I really like being uh, being surrounded by people. So I thought if I can make it a not survival mode, so you have to tell me if I'm allowed this, I would take a radio. So not for survival, but I couldn't contact anyone, but it would just be like sounds of people talking. I'd really like a radio. Um, and I think a bed, like a soft, comfy bed with a nice pillow. I'd really like that. I think if I got a good night's sleep, I could cope with anything that the island threw me in the day. Fleur, we've got two more questions for you, but I'm going to throw one extra one in that I'm sure a lot of people would like to know about. Michael Gove, you shadow him. How's that? Uh, I mainly see him over the dispatch box at which he's very, very charming. He's got this, the Scottish accent that's all about charm, but it's very clever at not answering any of my questions. So I end up absolutely really frustrated, charmed, but really, really frustrated. And I, I, I'm not allowed to answer back very much when I ask him a question that kind of that's the end of it. But I always want to go, but no, what's the answer? So that's my main in interaction has been with uh, Michael Gove so many questions that I have had over the con the COVID contracts up to now and so I keep asking the same questions that's my tactic. Okay Fleur what's the greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given? Ah well I do use this advice when I, I talk quite a lot to um, to schools in Putney um, by Zoom and in real life um, and they always give me a really good grilling and I always turn up and the teacher goes right we've got an hour I think ha, oh, <laughs> that's your easy hour and then they they have like a, th a 30 pupils grilling me for an hour gives them a good two or three questions each as well um, but one of the pieces of advice that I think has really stood me in good stead and I share with all the students I meet is about saying yes to things sometimes you might be afraid I mean obviously not if it's not safe but just generally to have the attitude of, yes, I'll do that. That's what's led me to being an MP, to be honest. Um, I didn't always plan to be an MP, but I just thought I just have been tried to make myself confident in life and say yes to things. So any opportunity and for a lot of pupils, I think going from uh, year six to year seven, so you're going to go into um, secondary school and you're going give, to be given lots of opportunities. If you have the the mindset of I'm going to say yes to things, I'm going to do things that I might not always want to do straight off, but I'm, I'm keen, then and that's a that's a good attitude to have in life. I don't know what, what trouble I've got people into from saying that. No, I, I totally hear that. You know, that there's, there's too many people who are risk averse and want to say no to everything, don't they? When actually you just say, look, if we aim for up here, then let's first of all, let's set our sights really high. Then we'll work out, can we get there and how we get there? But if you don't set the sights that high by saying yes and taking those leaps of faith, you'll never, ever achieve anything, will you? So the final question, Fleur, what next for Fleur Anderson? Well, I'm obsessed about being a really, really good MP for Putney. So um, I've been an MP now for about 18 months and I just want to stand up in the House of Commons and represent people in Putney as much as I can and all the time. So that probably sounds really cheesy, doesn't it? But it actually is what, <laughs> what drives me and motivates me so much. And I also want to, uh, in the Education Select Committee, we'll be doing quite a few things in the future. 
but also I think translating that into yeah, support for universities is a big thing for me. And I was in the early years committee earlier. And um, so a lot of work on early years is needed. And that really balances out what we were talking about, the COVID catch-up fund. What will that mean for early years? So what's next? is a lot of lot of different um, education policy but also um, what and also in my local area the re- reopening of Hammersmith Bridge I'm absolutely obsessed about getting a bridge open so I hope that's what's next as well. Fleur it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast tonight you know I'll say this to every guest but I genuinely mean it is particularly the members of the education select committee please in the future come back on because obviously education is moving you know at a fast pace and You've got such an important job. The Labour MP on that committee, you've got a definitely difficult job. And, you've, you know, you've got to stick by your principles. As much as I love Jonathan, and he was a great guest, stick by your principles when, you know, when Jonathan goes off on one, because it's, it's so important. Thank you for joining us. I hope you get the bridge opened in Hammersmith. Join us again, everybody. Fleur Anderson MP, thank you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks.